On occasion, we ask you to fill out questionnaires or surveys that help us gather information in order to serve you better. When we're adding a service or we're changing service times, we're wanting to make a change in a way that meets the needs of the greatest number of people possible. Or recently, we asked you a few questions in a surveys to get some information about how to improve our small group ministries so that we could serve and minister to you better. Or, we, we're, and we're going to keep doing that, we're going to keep asking for information in the form of questionnaires or surveys so that we can impact you in a greater way, but... I wonder if sometimes filling out surveys in church doesn't reinforce a bad trend. In America, we are professional consumers. We are the consummate customer. We know that when we go into stores or restaurants, there'll be a customer service form where we can rate our level of happiness. And if it's not in the store, it'll be on Yelp or online so that we can let the world know we're either happy or we're not. That's the way our economy works. It's the culture we live in. We are constantly being catered to. If my steak's not cooked right, I'll send it back. If I don't like the service I'm getting, I ask to speak to a manager. If the dry cleaner doesn't clean my clothes right, I'll argue. If they don't fix it, I go to the next cleaner. It's hard, my hard-earned money, and I'm going to get what I paid for. And I understand that because I'm a consumer just like you. But the danger comes when we approach church with the same mentality, like a customer. When we do, our tithes and offerings stop being gifts of worship to God and they become money. We pay the church for goods and services we expect to receive in return. We are customers. And if that's our idea, we've never really given God anything. We have bought things from the church. It's my hard-earned money and I'm going to get what I paid for. When we come with that consumer mentality to the church, we find ourselves asking questions like, are my opinions important? Are my preferences being catered to? Am I being noticed? Am I being served? Which is the opposite question of what we should be asking as members of the Lord's church. It's not, am I being served? It is, am I adequately serving enough? The customer or consumer spirit shouldn't be a part of the New Testament church, but too often in the American church, it is. But in the American church, it's not the only place that that consumer mentality has been found. In John 13, you get a glimpse into the heart of the 12 disciples and you see that same competitive consumer spirit among them that you might find on a Black Friday morning right after Thanksgiving at Walmart at 4 a.m. when 15 people are fighting over the last Tickle Me Elmo or brand new Xbox. In John 13, you step into an upper room of a house where Jesus is with his 12 disciples. It's sundown on the Thursday evening right before his death. And Jesus is down to the final hours of his life. He doesn't have a lot of time left with his disciples. He doesn't have a a lot of time to live. And he has been listening to them as they argue. He overhears a conversation and they are arguing among themselves about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Which one of them is the most important one among the twelve? This is the third time there is an argument around this topic with the disciples. 
And Jesus is, they they just don't seem to understand all that Jesus has been trying to say to them. He's been trying to announce to them, I'm not coming to establish a kingdom. Quit fighting over your places in the kingdom. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. This is not what you're thinking, but they don't get it. He said right before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was a lesson the disciples had a hard time learning because very much like us, they lived in a world where things didn't work that way. Jesus taught, the first will be last. He taught, if you want to be great, then you must become the servant of all. But that's not the world we live in either. In our world, you don't turn the other cheek. You even the score. You don't pray for your enemies. You defeat your enemies. In the world we live in, if you want to be first, you've got to elbow and cut your way to the front of the line. Because in our world, the first are first. And if you want to be exalted in our world, you've got to make sure you're noticed. You step into the spotlight whenever possible. Because in our world, the exalted are exalted. But Jesus was constantly calling his followers to a counterculture way of life. He came to be a servant. And he's calling everyone who follows him to that same kind of life. It's the type and attitude and spirit that is so rare in our culture when it happens, it makes the news. I don't know if you read the story in the USA Today about a year ago, last football season. It was in a high school game in Ohio. St. Clairsville High School looked to have the game locked up in the fourth quarter. Their star running back was named Michael Ferns, six foot three, 235 pound, four star recruit to Michigan. He ran the ball 52 yards down the sideline late in the fourth quarter and looked as if he had scored a touchdown. Matter of fact, all the referees that were running down beside him didn't see, and they just assumed, why wouldn't he? There was nobody around him. That's what you do. They threw their hands up in the air. They signaled a touchdown, and the moment they signaled a touchdown, Michael ran over to them saying, I didn't score. I didn't score. I didn't run across. And the referees had their hands in the air, and they're confused at why a kid is trying to talk them out of scoring a touchdown. The coach ran out on the field. He didn't score. He didn't score. He stepped out of bounds. The refs eventually overturned their call. The high school lined up to run one play from the one-yard line, and Michael checked himself out of the game. And in his place, they sent in a freshman named Logan Thompson. Logan had never carried the ball. He had never scored a touchdown. But two days before that game, he lost his father to a stroke. He lined up as a tailback, and read the final yard and scored the first touchdown of his life with minutes remaining in the game. After the game, Michael and Logan embraced in tears. When you see a moment like that, you say, that's the way life is supposed to be lived. That's the spirit that we're all supposed to possess. But we're not that way that often. I mean, We're too busy trying to pad our stats. We got 14 touchdowns, but 15 sounds like a better number. We're too concerned about being the greatest and the most important. And we're moved by stories like that from other people. But it's often too hard to find stories like that within our own lives. 
with less than 24 hours left of his life on the earth and the sand of the hourglass quickly running out, Jesus has time for one more lesson, one more sermon, but this time his sermon doesn't use words. He walks over and he picks up a towel and a wash basin and he chooses to begin washing the disciples' feet in this moment. When he picks up the towel and wash basin, the room goes quiet because the status-seeking disciples quietly watch the creator of the world, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the son of God, wash the dirty, smelly feet of disciples. John 13, verse 4, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. In Jesus' day, the foot washing thing was reserved for the lowest of servants. There was no question that it needed to be done and was supposed to be done before a meal like that on that day and because they were going to be reclining around a table having this Passover meal together in Middle Eastern culture this often meant sitting on the floor which would put the proximity of the table closer to their dirty feet. They had been walking the dusty dirty roads all day. Their feet had not been washed because it was a task reserved for the lowest on the totem pole and one any one of the disciples could have volunteered to do it, but none of them did because they were thinking it was somebody else lower on the pecking order that was the logical choice. And so while they just ignored the fact altogether, waiting for someone else, Jesus volunteers. He grabs the basin and the towel and he washes their feet. When he's finished, he says this in John 13, Now that I, the Lord your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus is saying you're going to be blessed if you live with this type of spirit, if you will serve with this type of attitude. Jesus came to serve and he calls all of his followers to this same type of service. As the hour of death and darkness and suffering approach him, he wants to capitalize, underline, put in bold type this final message to his followers. His last sermon was on selflessness. His last sermon was a call to serve. He announced that for him and his followers, life would not be about self-seeking titles, but it would be about the servant's towel. I want you to notice that probably, I don't know for you, but for me, when you serve the way Jesus serves, it means that you don't discriminate in your service Jesus serves, but he doesn't choose who he will serve based on the person's worthiness or whether or not they can pay him back. And I looked at my life thinking through this too many times when I have done something servant-hearted for someone else. I didn't intentionally say I'm going to do this because they're going to pay me back. But too many times when I have served other people, every one of the people in my life that I have served when I look back most of the time have the ability to reward me for my serving them. But Jesus serves disciples that he knows within moments 
are going to abandon him and betray him and deny him. He even washes the feet of Judas in this moment who would lead just a few hours later soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane to have him arrested. It's not natural to serve people like that. And maybe you're asking, Pastor, how do we? How do we grow to the point spiritually where we serve like that? How do you serve a husband who's never been thoughtful of your needs? How do you serve a wife who's never had a kind word to say to you? How do you serve a child who never says thank you? How do you serve a father as you grew up constantly belittled you? How do you serve a co-worker who stabbed you in the back or a friend who is always taking and never giving back? And I would answer, you can't. Without a transformed heart. Without allowing Jesus to live his life through you. But the thought of that is so difficult that we neatly fold up our towel and we throw it back in the drawer and we say somebody else is going to have to do this for once. Or we sulk and say, don't they know what I do around here? If that's the way it's going to be, I just won't do it anymore. Yet Jesus did not come to be served He came to serve. He didn't come to get paid back. He came to serve. He didn't come to get noticed. He came to serve. He didn't come to get a raise. He came to serve. He came to, he didn't come to be great. He didn't come to be recognized. He didn't come to be rewarded. He didn't come to be elected. He didn't come to be crowned. He came to serve. And he calls us to live the same kind of life he lived. He served people like Peter who would deny him and Thomas who would doubt him and Judas who would betray him. In other words, he came to serve people just like you and like me. In John 13, after Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he served them a meal. It was a Passover meal, a big Jewish festival meal. But we know that meal, that Passover meal, as the last supper. It's the last meal he would have before his crucifixion. And as you can see in front of you today in the balcony and on the floor, we're going to invite you to let him serve you that meal today. I think it's easy to feel like we're not worthy. To eat from the Lord's table. We can identify with Peter. When Jesus was washing Peter's feet, Jesus felt, uh, Peter felt awkward about that and said, Lord, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And I think for many of us, the greatest challenge more than following the example of loving Jesus or loving others like Jesus did, it's learning to let Jesus love us because we don't feel worthy of that kind of love. Tony Campolo, in his book, Letters to Young Evangelicals, shares a story of his first memory of taking communion. He was seven years old. He was in a church service, seated beside his parents. The pastor that day was preaching on the grace and forgiveness of God. And he says he noticed a 20-something-year-old, early 20-something girl sitting in the pew over to his right, right in front of his father. His father was down to his right. And he saw this 20-something girl, and she was visibly weeping. She had tears coming down her face. And the pastor was talking about the forgiveness of God available. And she was shaking her head no. as She was visibly arguing with what the pastor said because of the guilt and condemnation, obviously, that was in her life shaking her head no at the end of the message they 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 served communion and I guess Tony Campolo's father had witnessed the same thing and so when the communion came the little girl took the tray or young girl took the tray and she passed it off and intentionally did not take it she didn't feel like she was worthy of the Savior's love 
Tony's father was a Sicilian immigrant, an immigrant from Sicily who spoke broken English, but his heart was moved by the broken-hearted girl, and he leaned up, put his hand on her shoulder before the communion tray could get too far down the row, and he said to her in broken English, take it, girl. This was meant for you. Do you hear me? This was meant for you. And she nodded her head in approval and began to sob visibly, not tears of bitterness or shame or remorse, but this time tears of gratitude for the grace of God. At the end of this service, you're going to have an opportunity to come forward and receive from the Lord's table. And if Jesus were here today and he was serving us the Last Supper, I think there would be a challenge to serve when he gave it to us. I think he would challenge us to do this in remembrance of him. But to some of us, I think he would remind us that if we have trusted him and he is our Savior, but there's something in our life that is out of alignment, yes, we need to get it into alignment, but we have to understand his grace and acceptance all the while. And I think he would look to some of us that are are, are heaped under guilt and shame and condemnation and he would hold out this cup to you today and say it was meant for you do you hear me this was meant for you I've been talking about how Jesus serves I don't want to take the next few minutes and talk to you about how he saves the son of man did not come to be served but to serve It doesn't end there. After the foot washing and the Passover meal, there's this intimate meal where Jesus establishes the communion that we still take thousands, two thousands of years later. He takes his disciples from that place to his favorite place to pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he asks his friends, please pray for me. He says in Matthew 26, 38, He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He was in this most epic tug of war. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. Between pleasing himself and doing the will of his father. He was agonizing so much over what was before him and this decision that he sweat drops of blood. Literally, the anxiety was so great that capillaries burst in his head and faintly blood mixed with the sweat from his brow. Matthew 26, 39 says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In scripture, when you read the word of a cup, it is often a symbol of a person's life. And in this case, Jesus is saying, I, take, take this cup from me, but if, if, if I don't want my will in this situation. I I want your will. Does it have to be death? And if it has to be death, does it have to be crucifixion? And it seems that in this moment of prayer, the father keeps impressing on his son, there is no other way. There is no plan B. You remember in John 14 where Jesus said in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's as if God is reinforcing that. Remember, son, you are the only way. You are the truth. You are the only only life that is possible for these people to have their sins paid and for their slate to be wiped clean. There is no plan B. Under the agony, Jesus had asked his closest companions to pray for him. But remember, they had just left a meal, a big meal, on a holiday weekend 
And it's a cool, dark evening. And a full stomach and a cool evening are a deadly combination. Their eyes closed, but it wasn't to pray. They fell asleep. He wakes them up a couple of times because he needs the support of prayer. But the garden is interrupted. They're sleeping. He is praying by large soldiers who come on the scene. And in the midst, as they approach from the midst of the garden, there is a familiar face among them who walks over and greets Jesus in a, in a Middle Eastern way, similar to the way we would shake hands. This common Middle Eastern greeting was a kiss. And in Luke 22, Jesus asked Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And what transpires in the life of Jesus from that midnight to about 9 o'clock in the morning the next day is a series of five or six trials, we call them mock trials, that happen throughout the night. The first two are in front of Jewish leaders, Annas and then secondly Caiaphas. Caiaphas had gathered all of the Sanhedrin together. And if you know anything about Jewish law, this is the religious body of rulers that ruled over Jewish religion. To have a Sanhedrin court in the middle of the night was against the law. The Sanhedrin was not supposed to meet in the middle of the night. And so here they have an illegal court proceeding and they have false charges they have trumped up against Jesus. And as it goes on and they're not getting anywhere, it's obvious that he is innocent. Caiaphas asked Jesus a question. Are you the Christ? Do you think you're the son of God? And Jesus said, yes. And when he says yes, everything changes. They accuse him of blasphemy, they spit in his face, they cover his head, they beat him with their fists, and they take him to Pilate. Why? Because they wanted him executed. They had no authority to execute, the Roman powers had to be the one to execute. Pilate looks at him and says, this man has done nothing wrong, sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate again says, this man has done nothing wrong, let me flog him and release him. But they want blood, and that's what they get. A lot of it. The soldiers that did the scourging of Jesus were masters at ripping the skin off a criminal's back. And two-thirds of the people that went through flogging and crucifixion, two-thirds of them died during the flogging before they ever got to the crucifixion. But not Jesus. Some people try to portray him as some kind of wimp. He was not only a godly man, he was a manly God. The Bible uses a short phrase in the Gospels to describe what they did to him ultimately. It just says, they crucified him. Now, there are Gospel writers that tell us a few more details, but ultimately it leads to that simple statement, they crucified him. Because everybody back then that would have been reading their writing would have known what crucifixion entailed. It was the most prolonged and painful manner of death that if you read the details of it, it would literally turn your stomach. Some of you have watched The Passion of the Christ and seen it tried to depict in the most realistic way we've ever tried to depict it before. People have to turn away because it is gory, it is bloody, it is excruciating, it is hard to look at. Six inch metal spikes in your wrist and ankles ultimately led to death by suffocation. But imagine that you were living in the city of Jerusalem, not on that day. Rewind. A thousand years before Jesus, you're a resident of Jerusalem. He's not been born a thousand years before the day of Jesus. It's a typical morning. 
I want you to hear what it would have sounded like a thousand years before Jesus with crowds hustling and bustling on a typical day in Jerusalem. It would have sounded something like this. The Israelite nation knew that sound well. That's the sound of a shofar, an instrument that was made from the horn of a ram. The Israelites heard that sound twice a day, once at nine in the morning and a second time at three in the afternoon. The shofar would sound as an alert to the city. And once it began to sound, everybody stopped. The merchants quit selling in the market. The children quit playing in the streets. Moms quit tending to their household chores. Men at work stopped in the fields. Students in school paused. Everyone stopped what they were doing and grew silent because the sound of the shofar was signifying that at that exact moment a sacrifice was being made in the temple by a priest to God. It was a sacrifice of an innocent lamb on their behalf. Their silence was an expression of respect and gratitude that a sacrifice, a substitute for their sins was being made. A pure, spotless lamb. Thousands of years ago, when God instituted the sacrificial system, what he was doing through the sounding of the shofar and the sacrifice of a lamb was conditioning his people to understand sin brings death. He was conditioning them twice a day, all of their lifetimes for centuries. At nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, a shofar would sound and coinciding with that exact moment, a lamb would be slaughtered for their sins. An ongoing reminder to the Jewish people, there is a cost involved with forgiveness. Remember the words of John the Baptist when he's baptizing and he looks up and sees Jesus coming down the road. What does he call him? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Fast forward now to what we call Good Friday. The day that Jesus was crucified. In Christ's day, that morning and afternoon sacrifice had become quite elaborate. A priest near the altar would lift up the lamb and prepare to sacrifice it. And a priest in a very high place would stand at the highest point of the temple with a shofar. So could he blast the announcement across the city? And there was a third person with a sundial or an hourglass of some timekeeping instrument that when it hit nine in the morning or three in the afternoon, he would notify so the priest could blast the shofar. And with the blast of the shofar, the sacrifice of the lamb would begin on the altar. Somewhere in the temple courts, all of this was happening and the same thing happened every day at 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Have you ever wondered when the crucifixion began for Jesus? You don't have to wonder. Mark's gospel spells it out. Mark 15, 25 says, it was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. What are the odds of that? He was put on a cross outside the city at the exact time inside the city. The shofar sounds to mark the sacrifice of a lamb. 
The Bible tells us that three hours later, around the hour of noon, that there was this unusual meteorological phenomenon that happened, that darkness covered all of Jerusalem beginning at noon, and it stayed there for three solid hours. Even Josephus, he's not a biblical writer, he is a respected historian, records in his history on the day that Jesus was crucified that the clouds grew eerily dark while Jesus was hanging on the cross for about three hours. So when did Jesus die? You don't have to guess about that either. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all give us the specific time of his death. And guess when it might be? Three o'clock in the afternoon. Here's the scene on Good Friday. Two million people, according to Josephus, had entered into Jerusalem, crowding into the city that day because it was a Passover holiday. People were coming from everywhere. There's an eeriness in the whole city because it's covered with darkness. Tons of Jewish pilgrims have come into town for this ceremonial sacrifice of the lamb inside the temple. There's hustle and there's bustle. They don't realize what time it is because of three hours of unusual darkness. And all of a sudden at three o'clock, they hear the blast of a shofar. And at that moment inside, Inside the walls of Jerusalem, the entire city gets quiet because all that they know is that in the temple, a sacrifice was made on their behalf. What they didn't realize is outside the city, hung between two thieves, was the real Lamb of God that was being sacrificed at the same time with the blast of the shofar so that once and for all, sin would be applied to cover the debt of humanity so that the sacrifice of innocent lambs would not have to happen. But once and for all, He paid for all of us in that moment. He hangs, he fights, he endures the cross, somehow stays alive until three o'clock for six hours he hung in agony in his hour of darkness and when the shafar sounded at 3 p.m. he declared, it is finished. So that Jude could write in verse three of his one chapter letter, dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. No more sacrificial system. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Once for all. And just to make certain, Pastor Barry, if you would come that we don't miss the significance of that final phrase that Jesus said. It is finished. In some translations it says it is accomplished. In the English we translate it into three words. In the Greek it is one word. And in the original language it is a merchant term that is a reference for buying and selling, paying off an account. It is what they use in accounting circles. It is finished. It meant it is paid for. And when Jesus, his last words uttered from his mouth at the three o'clock blast of the shofar, he was announcing to us that this long tally of sin and transgression against God, that whosoever believes upon him, that puts their faith in him, that that sin debt will be washed, that will be paid. It's an accounting term that means it is paid for. Today, We have a privilege to come to the same table they came to in John 13. It is a table that reminds us that Jesus serves and that Jesus saves. 
we're not going to serve you like we have in the past. Just a couple weeks ago, we're going to give you the opportunity to come, if you so choose, to the table. Maybe you're one of those people that you put your faith in Christ, but there's some things in life right now that would cause you to live under this heap of guilt. Yes, I know there's scripture there that says not to approach the communion table in an unworthy manner. I understand that. That's why this is a moment of soul searching and asking God for his mercy. But I agree with Tony Campolo's father in broken English. And I would say to you the same thing he said to that girl. This is for you. Take it, girl. This is for you. Today, Jesus did not make any designation of worthiness when he served people. Nobody in this room deserves this table more than anybody else. Nobody deserves his love more than anybody else. He invites us all to his table. For those of us that have served him a long time, I think his challenge is for us to move away from self Seeking titles. Stop performing and posturing and elbowing our way to the front of the line. Yes, in our world, the first will be first and the exalted will be exalted. But God's counterculture, the last will be first and the humble and meek will be exalted. May God bring us to the place we throw off the willingness to the titles begin to live a selfless life of serving but if you're in this room and you have walked away disengaged from a relationship with Jesus or you have never known what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ I want to invite you to put your trust in him I want to invite you to put your faith in him I want to invite you to commit your life to him The scripture says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13 says, will be saved. And I want you to do it right where you are. And then what I want you to do is I would love for you, whether you're a prodigal coming back home or somebody that's never committed their life to Jesus, he serves and he saves. I want you to commit your life to him right where you are. And then when we stand in just a moment and we begin to take these elements from the table, I I want you to let the first thing you do as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, to come to his table and take this with us. And then I'd love for you to get baptized next weekend. Join some others who have committed their lives to Christ and be publicly declare, I'm a Christ follower. Father, I pray today in this moment, people that are away from you will be drawn back into relationship. I pray, Lord, that people that have never known you would sense a supernatural tug of something they don't even understand in the relationship with you. 
For those of us that have known you for years, I pray that there would be a conviction that would come into our heart as we approach the table, that these things were not just done for us, but they were done so that we could do them for others. May we garner a servant's towel, lose our posturing, our entitlement, our, our entitlement, our, our titles, and may we drop the consumer thing and become a servant. Let this moment be a message to us of your serving and your saving. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me all over this place and let me give you a little instruction today. We're going to take the next few moments and just make it reflective. We're not going to have a certain moment where I say take the bread and take the cup. It's going to be between you and the Lord today. We're going to let this be a benediction. I'm not going to come up and close the service. I'm going to speak a prayer right now. And then those of us that want to participate in communion, I'm going to invite you to do so. I'm going to, I'm going to ask if you would to kind of come to this aisle and this come to this aisle and when you serve yourself if you guys would go back around this way and you guys would come back around this way and this side if you guys would come down this aisle and be served and and go back that way so it flows and can go to your seat you can just kneel if you want to but just kind of kneel out of the traffic areas if you feel like God is calling you to just spend some time with him today or go back to your seat and I'm asked Pastor Bear to create an environment of worship. I'm not going to come back and dismiss it. There are opportunities in the balcony for those of you to serve yourselves. Father, I pray today you'll bless them and keep them. I pray you'll make your face shine down upon them. I pray you'll be gracious to them and you'll turn your countenance their direction. And I pray that you'll give them peace. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the privilege, even though we're unworthy to come to your table. I think you're saying, take it. It's for you. And may we turn it into service when we leave. In Jesus' name, and amen. If you want to receive communion, please come. Seated above, enthroned in the Father.